Praise of the one light, this week, truth invites, never commands. Truth is one and eternal. Realize one is with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Free will is basically is a basic principle of life. God never coerces that he invites us to live in such a way that we find fulfillment in ourselves. If we refuse to live rightly, Paramahansa Yogananda taught, God simply says, I will wait. We have eternity to live. In that eternity, we live as we choose, in self-created darkness, a darkness that as intense and as long-lasting as we choose, or in the infinite light, the true self within God, which is God. Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes offer a beautiful example of God's way of inviting mankind to seek perfection, not by commanding, but by offering his human children the incentive they need to choose the right of their own volition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, see, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In each of the Beatitudes, Jesus explained the blessing attendant upon observing it. The divine way, similarly, for each of us is not to, be, to do violence to our own natures. Spirituality must be obtained naturally. It can never be obtained by force. The Bhagavad Gita says in the third chapter, even the wise behave in accordance with nature, capital N, as it is manifested in them. Of what avail then is suppression? The scripture then goes on, however, to explain that this doesn't mean we should surrender to the dictates of our Lord nature. Rather, it emphasizes our need to aspire to the heights, but each of us in accordance with his own nature and not in imitation of anyone else's offering ourselves up to purification by divine grace. Desire, whatever form it takes, so the Bhagavad Gita explains, should be resisted, even if only mentally. Attachment and repulsion to sense objects, both of these are universally rooted. No one should accept their influence, for verily they are man's enemies. Thus, through holy scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Morning, welcome to Sunday service. My name is Atman, this is Bhakti Marg. It's our pleasure to share Sunday service with you. Welcome especially to all those who are here with us as visitors and guests, and those of you who are completing the spiritual counseling program, those who have come for weekend personal retreat, or the karma yogis, or if you're just here for Sunday service, welcome. We're going to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity. These are prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Cure spiritual deafness and make me listen to the chorus of noble qualities. Can the blind man appreciate the light? Can the deaf man appreciate song? 
O Father, how can a person intoxicated with the pleasures of the senses appreciate clearly the benefits of good health and the physical energy and mental clarity that come with self-control? Father, how can the luxury satiated and sense surfeited hear the celestial peace-giving chorus of noble qualities in simple, humble, but spiritually rich souls? Bless us that we may behold in the subtle, beautiful rays of good habits this truth, that virtue is far more attractive, invigorating, and satisfying than vice, and that it opens the way for us to hear thy guiding voice behind all other sounds. So every week we start the readings raised with one light. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness within yourself, with your deathless self within. Truth is one and eternal. It's not something that can be voted into existence. It's not something that changes because different times, different cultures, different people interpret it differently or define it differently. Truth simply is. And when we can live in concert with that truth, when we know that truth, the masters say, that's what will set us free. So we're going to talk a little bit about knowing truth and the pitfalls of that and how one does that. And fortunately for us, where uh, our way of knowing truth is changing in this culture, in this age, and it's really important to understand where we're going and how we've done that. So I want to start with a little bit about the yugas. I, the yugas, for me, define and is a framework that explains many, many things. So I want to share a little bit about that. Even if you know about the yugas, bear with me. So the yugas that Yukteswar, uh, Yogananda's guru, taught is there, there are cycles of time on this planet. And the sun, our sun moves in a grand cycle, sometimes closer to the center of our galaxy and sometimes farther away. And in the center of that galaxy, there is a great source of energy. And you can think of it as energy or consciousness or divine rays that are emanating forth. And as our planet gets closer to that center, it's easier to perceive the truth. As it moves farther away, we have more of a cloud, more of a shroud in the consciousness of mankind in general. So the good news is that we're no longer in the lowest age. We're moving out of it, and we're actually moving toward the center of the galaxy, so things are improving. Our ability to know truth is improving, and we're making progress. The bad news is that we're still just out of Kali Yuga, and there is a higher age that's called Satya Yuga. Satya means truth, where there is no veil between us and truth, and you can perceive that easily. But unfortunately, Satya Yuga is still about 6,000 years away from now. So we're probably not going to make it in this lifetime, although we can look forward to it in the future getting there. But again, we've come out of Kali Yuga, and it's very important to realize that because the way of knowing truth in Kali Yuga, still there's a lot of holdovers for that, especially in the domain of religion. And in the Kali Yuga times, we just, we've just moved into Dwapara proper about 1900. So we're not very far into this. It's a 2,400-year cycle. Uh, we had a transition period of 200 years. We're about 100 years into it. So we've got a ways to go before it's fully realized. But we've left behind Kali Yuga. And the way Kali Yuga defined truth was to make it fixed and black and white dogmas. It was, if we can define it, if we can put words on it, if we can decide what it is, 
then that's what it is. And you'd find this in all the churches. They'd spend a great deal of time deciding what it is that all the masses should believe. And once they decided what that was, and sometimes it changed, but they never emphasized that. But once they decided what that was, they would tell the masses what it was and how to believe. And people would be in their fixed little roles. And if you did this and if you believed this, you would go to heaven. If you did this and believed this, you would suffer eternal damnation. There wasn't a lot of room for individual interpretation. It was, this is it. And if you don't like it, tough. There's nothing about you interacting with this, you thinking about this. Just truth simply was. And that colored all of our, the institutions of Kali Yuga, especially, as I said, the religious ones. And even though we're in Dwapara Yuga, religious institutions, because they are the ones that are protecting truth or defining truth, tend to be the ones that are the slowest to change. And as you look at the religious institutions that have moved into this age, they have been very slow to change. My own journey, I remember growing up in the Protestant uh, Presbyterian Church, and we would recite every now and then, I think it was the Nicene Creed, and forgive me if I've got this wrong, it wasn't something that was real important in my life, I left behind, but we would sit there as a congregation and say, I believe in God the Father, the eternal creator of the universe, and his only given son, Jesus Christ, I believe. And, you know, we just repeat that. And once you repeated it and you got it, okay, I know what I believe. It wasn't, do I really believe this? Wait, what's he talking about? God the Father. What does that mean? Was it Jesus Christ? Are there other saviors? Or how does this work? No. This is what I believe. You want to be part of this church? This is what you believe. So, fortunately, as I said, we've moved beyond some of the dictates of Kali Yuga and that strict black and white and fitting into a mold and the material. Even, even those who are the, the most attuned religious seekers, how do they seek religion? And how do they seek enlightenment in Kali Yuga? It's through the monastery. What did the monasteries do? The monasteries had rules. Some of the orders, the Benedictines, for example, have, I don't know, hundreds of rules. This is how a devotee is. This is how you believe. This is what you do. And you just follow that, and you get it drilled into you, and it made some good progress. There were people who found some enlightenment through that, but by and large, that's not what we're given these days. We're moved into a new age, the age of science, the age of of investigation, the age of a fluidity of roles, of changing. We no longer are fixed by our birth. We're no longer fixed by who we are, what country we're in. We can change countries. We can change cultures. We can change religions. We can change professions. We can get educated. We're in a much more fluid age, the age of science, of reason, of investigation, of things. Does this make sense? Does this, is this something that I can relate to? And because of this, we're in a great turmoil because a lot of people have taken this to mean throw out the old, just be gone with this. The Nicene Creed, I don't need that. I'm going to figure out what I believe and I'm going to follow what I think I need to do. I'm going to be me to thine own self be true. I mean, this is a very modern concept that we've gotten into that I need to find my way in life. I need to make my mark. I need to decide what it is that I need to do. I, I, I. And to thy own self be true. Well, is that a self with a little s? In most cases it is. It's to his own little ego bundle of delusion that we've decided to be true. So we have the freedom to do that and we've been exploring that. And what does that mean? It means getting involved in 
all kinds of uh, mischief. You can... <laughs> We can pursue intoxication. You know, yeah, I'm not going to forget eternal damnation. If I want to get drunk, I'm going to get drunk. This feels good. You can pursue sex. You can pursue power. You can pursue money. You can just go out there and say, yeah, I'm, I have to find out what I want. I've got to get mine. Well, at some point, those indulgences get perhaps a little old or you start to realize that, well, it still isn't doing it for me. I mean, for me, it was... I think for a lot of people, you go off to college and you're, you know, you're out of the Nicene Creed and you're out of your parents and you're just out there and there's all kinds of new ideas and there's new vistas opening and you can party and you can explore this and you can experiment with this and you can travel and you can remake yourself. You can reinvent yourself as a Dwapara Yuga person. Well, at some point though, I realized, and I think a lot of people realize, some it takes long, long time to realize. I mean, most of our society is still bound up in the delusions of sex and money and intoxication. But for those who are a little perhaps closer to the truth or seeking at least, you realize this isn't what I wanted. This isn't, this isn't giving me where I wanted, you know, this isn't getting me where I wanted to go. I'm still a little unhappy and you know, I'm not all that much more happy than when I was sitting in the pew in the Presbyterian church. So What's wrong here? I mean, you know, I'm finding myself and to that own self be true. Well, the problem is that we're not really going toward truth. We're going towards these little bundles of ego desires that are, we've, we've gotten through our societal conditioning, through many lifetimes, and we're pursuing things. You know, I want to be free. It's my own free will. Well, there is no freedom because we have these things that are inside us saying, yeah, you really like to get drunk. You should go do that. Yeah, you really like this. You should go do that. And, you know, there's all these, you know, we're pursuing these things that don't really lead us to truth. So what do we do? There's a number of different reactions. One reaction of a large part of the society in Dwapar Yuga is go back to Kali Yuga. Try to find those fundamental beliefs, that surety, the, the movement of fundamental Islam, of fundamental Christianity. It's people looking for surety. It's looking back for those values of someone telling them what they need to believe, how they should act, what they should do. Unfortunately, uh, it doesn't always bring you to the truth. It can help. Uh, leading a good moral life can make people happy. It's a good thing. But the fundamentalist back to Kali Yuga is not really where we want to go because we need to be more into Dwapara Yuga where it is important that we figure out these things for ourselves. So the fundamentalist doesn't work. What else is there? There's a self-help movement. There's getting in there and doing the work, finding out what it is. What are these compulsions that drive me? What are these pieces of my ego that lead me to happiness or not to happiness? And people get into therapy. People get into all kinds of self-help things. And these are all good. But it's still not maybe the answer towards truth because you're still inside your own little vortex of your ego and it doesn't really get you out of there. It doesn't really move you beyond. So then you take another step and this was the step to, that I took. You start looking at, well, maybe there is wisdom in this world. Maybe there is a wisdom traditions that have something to say to us and you start looking at some of those teachings, be it a deeper Christianity or some of the Eastern teachings or whatever they are, you know, the yamas and niyamas, you know, there are moral tenets, the ways to live. And if I start living those ways, 
Maybe it's not just the church telling me I should live those ways. Maybe that'll really make me happier. Maybe some of the Ten Commandments are there because they're more in tune with truth. And if I start living that way, maybe that'll help me. And so we start searching and we start looking at ways that, you know, can this, can this get me towards truth? And we realize that in some ways that these, all these things are just, just living. It's not, it's, not really, it's not really enough because the world, as much as I want it to change, doesn't seem to be changing. All these things outside of me that are annoying to me and causing trouble with my happiness, I'm not really changing those. They're not really getting out of the way. And all these things that I'm looking for are, you know, I'm not really getting there either. And I'm just sort of spinning around in my, my own desires and my own vortices. And so we come to say, you know, maybe I need some help. And that's when we look outside for a teacher or for a spiritual path or an organization or a guru or a way of going beyond. We look for a higher power. It's not just enough to be inside our own little vortices of things. And so at that point, this is a critical moment in our search for truth. We decide, hmm, there are some things maybe that need to be changed here. There are some things inside that are perhaps holding me that are creating this veil from the truth. It's not really just all outside. There's something inside. And so what's our first reaction? We say, okay, I'm going to be a yogi, and this is how a yogi is. A yogi eats this diet, doesn't do this, doesn't run after drink and intoxicants, doesn't indulge in the sense pleasures. That's what I'm going to do. And so what we start doing is we start suppressing all this tendency of who we are. There's a consciousness there that was there, you know, the month before we found the spiritual path. It's still there. But we found the spiritual path, and we know how we're supposed to be now. And so we start suppressing those things. But this is a fundamental error, because what we're really doing is mixing up the direction of causation here. What we see is that because I have all these tendencies, all these desires, all these attachments, all these ways of doing things, that's what's making me not spiritual. That's what's keeping me from the truth. Or in fact, it's the other way around. You have this consciousness, you have these things inside you, and that's what's manifesting as these outside desires. So to suppress them, it's like an allopathic medicine where you're just treating the symptom and you're not trying to get at what's really happening inside. So you have a, a skin irritation, there are a boil coming out of your skin and you put some sort of a cream on it to make it go away but you never addressed it, what it was inside there that was causing that putrefaction to come up through the skin. It's the same way with suppression. That's why in the reading it says, suppression doesn't work. You have to be true to your own nature. True to your own nature doesn't mean indulging it. It means looking at it. It means realizing what it is there that I really have to work on, that I really have to look at, that I really need some help with. So what are there other common reactions to uh, wanting to get rid of these symptoms? Another one is worry. That's a big one. Suddenly we go, oh my God, I'm not really spiritual. I have all these problems. I mean, look at this. this is coming out. I'm never, I'm never going to make it as a devotee. How can I possibly do this? Oh my God, this is horrendous. And you kind of beat yourself up and you worry about it and you wonder why you're not making spiritual progress. And it's not that helpful in finding truth. What's another common reaction? Denial. I am a yogi. 
therefore, I don't get angry. No, I'm not angry. Just because your stuff is getting in the way of me, of providing my happiness, I am not angry. <laughs> yeah, what happens? A lot of times, we just put that out there. We're denying that we're in this place. We are. You have to be true to yourself. You have to realize you're in this denial. So what's the way out? You take the next step down on the spiritual path. It's what the readings talk about. The only way out is really to attune yourself to a higher reality. It's transcendence. It's in Dwapara Yuga fashion, taking a flow of energy and moving it to somewhere else. Instead of this flow moving outward toward the senses, towards fulfillment in the world, towards material pleasures, it has to move somewhere different. How do you do that? You have to do that by attuning to some sort of a higher reality. You have to look at what it is that can bring that energy up. Because once that energy is brought up or channeled into a different way, a lot of these boils on our skin, these things that we wanted to get rid of, they start going away by their own accord because you're dealing with that underlying consciousness, that underlying reality. You're not going to do it by suppression, as the reading says. You have to be real. You have to be self-honest. But it doesn't mean accept that. It doesn't mean indulge it. It means transcend it and move it. So I had a good example of this in my life. Um, when people first come to Ananda, part of the teachings to help people raise their consciousness is to be careful with what they listen to, to, to be discriminating in their musical taste. And a fairly strong uh, recommendation is to listen to Swami's music. That's who our teacher is here. That, cert- that music has a certain vibration to it, a certain upliftment. And it's important to listen to that and to attune to that. So when I first got here, like many, many other people here, this was a hard one because for a long time I had had my tunes with me and they had you know, carried me around the world and I had put them on through hard times and good times and travels and they were kind of a basic. I'm in the car, I'm listening to this music and I had my little boxes. In those days it was little boxes of cassette tapes and you know, I had my tunes with me. And you know, this, was, this was a difficult one because I liked this music and it was, it was good for, you know, I felt, I felt like I was making me happy. But because... I was disillusioned enough and I knew that I needed to change. I said, okay, well, let me try this. And so I stopped, by and large, stopped listening to this different music and really tuned into Swami's music and really started doing that. Well, was it like I was suppressing it? I don't know. To start with, maybe there was a little bit of that. But eventually, I can, as I changed through Kriya Yoga, the practice of meditation, through being here, occasionally I'd put some of that music on and yeah, it had some nice memories for me. It would bring me back to a certain moment or something. But then after a few minutes, I go, wow, I don't really want to listen to this. And it was something that had just fallen away, that it, by and large had just left me. And the things I wanted to listen to were things that were more in tune with where my consciousness was going. So it just, it wasn't something I had to push away. It's something that fell away. And as we redirect that energy, that can happen a lot in our lives. That suppression can move to transcendence, and that transcendence, once your energy's at a different level, the things that you're holding back at this lower level just fall away. Some of those grosser desires, indulgences, just fall away. So what also can help in this move towards attuning to a higher consciousness is really tuning into a guru, tuning into a true spiritual path, a true teaching. And so in my journey, I 
went looking for a spiritual path, and I visited lots of different ashrams and churches and satsangs and read a lot of things. But you have to be careful on this one too, because it's this fine balance between suppression or you know fake it till you make it until or is it really real coming from within? And as I visited these ashrams, you know, I admit it was I wasn't the most advanced soul and attuned, and perhaps it was just my need to change in perception. But oftentimes what I perceive in these places was that there was a it wasn't real. There was, a, there was a falseness to it. There was sort of a putting on of the air of a spiritual person. And because I've sort of moved through that, I, I had rejected that. I didn't really want to do that. And, you know, it was all wonderful. There were beautiful teachings, and they're probably beautiful people. Again, it may have been just my interpretation. But it was, you know, there was something that didn't quite resonate. And then I, during this journey, we made it to Ananda. And one of the things that really appealed to me about Ananda was that it, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel like there was this putting on of the devotee and all oh, of the holier than thou and yes, please come this. And I mean, it was people were real here, and you could sense that. I mean, there was this, you know, out you got you know, there's we're doing ceremonies and there's a certain bob to that. There's a certain way of being, but you know, you move outside of that, and the people were still bubbling with joy. They were still happy. They were still friendly. They were still humorous. And uh, I have to tell a story. One of the things that sort of sealed my desire to move to Ananda was uh, I went to a community meeting. I was here as a karma yogi, and we got invited to come to a community meeting in this room. And the community's going, I want to see, what's all this about? Are these people real? You know, let's take off the rose-colored glasses. What's going on here? So they went through a number of things about community business, and Vidura was up here leading the meeting, and there were various people. And, And all of a sudden, the meeting stops, and this music comes on, and the loudspeaker of Hail to the Chief. <laughs> and in through the back door walks Rick Morehouse in this, in this uniform, a complete military uniform, except that it had, like, faucets and valves and things <laughs> hanging off the uniform. And he, you know, to the music of Hail to the Chief, he strides up to the podium, and he pulls out this chart, and he just says, see, and he has this picture of clouds and rain, and says, See this up here? That's cloud. That's God's water. When the water gets down here, that's my water. (laughs) I am the supreme commander. All this was, he had just been, he was just taking over the role of running our water department. (laughs) And to me, that just said, this is it. These people, (laughs) I want to be part of this. It wasn't, you know, Yogananda and all that. That came later. So... (laughs) Rick, you may have never known what you had done. <laughs> but what, the other thing that really, that really appealed to me about Ananda was, was just the way that people were worked with here. And it was, it was really from Master's vibration that Swami brought that down to Ananda. And Master, when he worked with people, he wasn't telling you what truth was. He wasn't setting out rules. He wasn't coercing people, saying you need to be this way, you need to follow this. He was really trying to work from within. He was trying to get people to change that consciousness, to attune to something higher, his consciousness. Durga Mata was one of his chief disciples, and she was, you know, you'd think, oh, here's this nice nun, and we'll have her reading books and working in the office. Oh, he had her doing all kinds of things, like including 
revamping his, his camping car, basically making a camping trailer, and he sent her down to this garage. This is the 1930s. And he sent this woman, single woman, down to this garage and said, yeah, I want you to take apart this camping car, put it back together, I want you to know, do this, do this. And she's going, Master, I don't know anything about mechanics. He said, it doesn't matter. Just tune in. I will work through you. And he worked that way with all his disciples. Was he not capable of organizing? No, he could organize. He just said, a work of this scope, what it's going to really need is people who understand and who people understand how to solve things themselves and tune into a higher consciousness. And even when it was, there were a couple matters of, of life and death. And you know, in the reading it says that God doesn't coerce and his, his representatives, the gurus, they don't coerce. And master, he didn't coerce. There was this one story that Swami tells of a young man who came to Mount Washington and who was having amazing spiritual experiences that he was just, you know, feeling the bliss and, you know, expanding consciousness and visions and everyone else was sort of, whoa, what's going on? And what was interesting was that they didn't feel his sense of attunement. They didn't really feel he was there. He was still a little bit eclectic, still moving around and still being drawn toward lots of different things, including worldly things. And a master said to this man, he said, he was, he was getting restless and he was thinking of leaving. He was thinking of leaving the spiritual path. And Master said to him, if you leave the spiritual path now, it's going to take you 200, 200 incarnations to get back to where you are right now. This is pretty high stakes right here. And Master could see that. But did he try in some way, said, you know, lock the guy in his room till this delusion passed? He said, no, it's his karma to deal with. He has to make this decision. He's the one that has to understand, do I want this or not? He has to want to work with where he truly is, his own true nature. And that person ended up leaving the spiritual path. And he came back some years later, and Master said, you know, we just both wept tears of grief for this person. He wept, and the man who had left, left, wept. And he said, you know, if you try really hard now and you come back, you might be able to shorten that period of delusion to seven incarnations. But alas, the man didn't. And as far as Swami knew, he sort of went back to the world and he said, no, I've been defeated. I couldn't do this. And, you know, he swept away. But the guru who knew the truth didn't impose on him at that point. It was needed to be come from inside. That's the way the Swami's worked with all of us over the years here too. He wouldn't impose. He was very rare that he would give direct advice. He said, people really need to be able to solve this for themselves. They really need to be able to find out what it is that's going to work for me. How do I get out of this problem? And Asha tells a very interesting story in her book uh, that she edited of Swami Kriyanda, as we have known him, that Asha was uh, Swami's secretary for many years, and she would watch, occasionally people would come over with or often people would come over with lots of problems, and she would see Swami consoling them and offering advice and sympathy and just you know being there for them, for them. One time Asha came with a big problem. She was in tears. She was really broken up. And what did Swami do? Swami went over to his desk in his little work area, and he started checking his dead batteries. He started putting a little probe on it as well. This one has something and this one doesn't. And Ash is sitting there going, oh, poor me on this one. And finally she just said, I guess I'm late. I'll leave now. And Swami just said, oh, goodbye. That's all, that's all he said. And at that point she realized 
I need to do this myself. And she was able that evening to break through something that was really been holding her back, you know, with the grace of Swami, the grace of the masters, but she was able to move through that. And Swami later said, Asha passed a very difficult test this week. And she later said to Swami, why didn't you tell me? He said, I couldn't tell you. This is something that you had to work out for yourself. You had to work out it through your own attunement. So over and over he's done that. And Swami, when asked, what is it that made Ananda successful? He said, it's because individuals here are allowed to be themselves. We always try to work with compassion, but we try not to force. We have a rule, which is a guidelines of what we're aspiring to, but it's not a rule that's enforced that people are kicked out of here if they can't. You know, attuned to this. We always try to pull people, aspire, inspire them to aspire to these higher ideals, to work things out for themselves, to move upward. And, it, you know, it doesn't always work. Sometimes there's some discipline involved, and Swami sometimes disciplined people. There was one woman, again, in this book, she was recounting the story that she had done something pretty out there. It affected a lot of people, community resources. It was, it was a mistake. And so she was talking to Swami about it, and Swami was very rationally going over all the things that had been done wrong and scolding her and really going through this. In the middle of the conversation, he said, you know, you still have my love. And the the woman who was being scolded said, yes, I know. And they went back to the scolding. (laughs) (laughs) And over and over in that book, that's what comes out about Swami's brilliance in creating this community. It was just the ability to surround everyone and that sense of divine love. And I think that's the lesson that we want to take for this. How do we work with ourselves? How do we work with other people? How do we get out of these things that we need to suppress? How do we relate to truth? We need to first tune into that transforming power of love and meditation. Go deep in love. Worship the divine within yourself. Get contact with that divine, with that love. That love will spill out. Swami says it spills out and over and it starts spilling out to all those around you. And at that point, then you can help other people. You can not judge them. You can see the highest in them. You can help inspire them. But it's through that power of love. Because that love will lead us to the truth. And that truth will set us free.